This is Exodus 33, beginning in verse 17. This is what the Word of God says. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to you, and I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Let's pray, and we will begin. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the revelation of your glory, your name, as expressed here in Exodus 33. Lord, we know that in keeping with your great name and essential to what your name is, is your freedom. And so, Father, we ask that you would show us your glory as we contemplate the great doctrine of election, knowing and understanding that what we're seeing is part and parcel of what it means to be God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would show us this glory as we look to your word now. Instruct us, grow us, help us to see uh, all of that you have for us in your law today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you didn't think it a bit strange, I did when I first read this passage of Scripture. But what type of an answer is it to hear God say to a person who asks him, Lord, I pray, show me your glory. What type of an answer is it for God to say, I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion? Sort of makes you sort of scratch your head and wonder, what does that mean? I will show compassion. No, I said, show me your glory. And God says, okay. You must know that I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So in other words, essential to what it means to be God, essential to the very glory of God is his freedom to dispense his mercy and his compassion to whomever he wills and in whatever way he wills. In other words, Part and parcel of what it means to be God is that God does whatever he wants to whomever he wants, and he answers to absolutely nobody. That's what it means to be God. And if you turn with me to the book of Romans, in the book of Romans there, the apostle Paul picks up the thought of Exodus 33 when trying to give some sort of description of why it is that the Jewish people, by and large, are forfeiting the salvation that has been afforded to them in Christ. In order to answer that, the Apostle Paul pulls on the language of Exodus, but he develops this in chapter 9 all the way through. So that's to say, this is happening, but this is according to God's election. Why are the Jewish people not following Jesus? 
Why are the Jewish people failing to see their Messiah in all of his glory? Why are they not coming to his redemption? Why are they not streaming in, into Christ? It's because, as Paul argues in Romans, the answer that he gives is that even though, verses 4 and 5, the promises were made to them and they are forfeiting the salvation, Paul is saying, it is the reason why this is, is because there is an Israel beneath the Israel. There is a true Israel in it all because the, the audience of Romans is going to suspect, has God's word failed? Verse 14, or verse 6 rather. And in verse 14, is there injustice with God? We couldn't ask a more profound question than to ask, is God righteous? Is God good? To question his righteousness is gets to the very core of who God is. And Paul says in a number of ways, no, God is not unrighteous. Number one, he does this by declaring that not all Israel is Israel, verse 6. So he introduces a special Israel of God uh, that he calls the children of God, verses 6 through 9. He also does this by grounding uh, God's redemptive purposes in the doctrine of election, verses 10 through 13. They're in all in chapter 9, verses 10 to 13, to show that it is according, uh, according to election that God is saving, not according to whether or not you are a physical descendant of Abraham. Thirdly, he also secures God's sovereign election as a matter of God's free and sovereign grace to do as he pleases, to have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and to harden whom he may harden, verses 14 through 18. Also, he does this. He establishes God's purpose. He justifies the purposes of God by showing the audacity of questioning God. Verses 19 to 21, the audacity for finite man to question the infinite God. And then also by concluding that supreme in God's purpose in the world and in all peoples is to display his glory. And in order to do that, he has to display both his mercy and his wrath. Verses 22 to 23. John Piper wrote a very famous commentary on Romans 9. Just Romans 9. The title is The Justification of God. So Piper concludes that God's sovereign freedom is, as he says here, quote, the essence of what it means to be God. It is his name. Remember, I told you several times that in the Bible, the name, a name, when Jesus says, I have revealed your name to them, and they have kept your word. When Jesus says that in John 17, the word name literally means everything descriptive of that person, who that person really is, and what they are all about. And so the name that God declared to Moses there on the mount, was that he was free. 
In other words, it's a description of his nature, that he is sovereign and that he is free, that he is unlimited, that God works absolutely autonomous to anything outside of himself. He grounds the whole doctrine of election, Paul does, and God does in Exodus 33, in his freedom to dispense his, gr his grace as he wills. Now, historically, the doctrine of unconditional election, which is what we're looking at, teaches that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, not on the basis of anything that we have done, so that it is not based on any sort of foresight on God's part, as if he looked down the corridors of time to see who is it going to be down the corridor of human history who will choose me. And on the basis of that choice, God then makes his choice as if our choice of him triggers God's choice of us. It is absolutely the opposite. It is that God chooses before the foundation of the world. It is that God is sovereign over his saving grace. Now, I want to point out here that as you study the doctrine of election, you're studying some of the most profound truths in all of Scripture. And so I would call you to always limit yourself to Scripture. John Calvin said, it's like walking around in a pathless wasteland to wander into the doctrine of election outside of Scripture. He says it's like striking out in the dark. It's like going out and venturing and looking for something in the dark. Calvin says, instead, we should refrain from inquiring into a kind of knowledge, the ardent desire for which would be but foolish and dangerous and even deadly. That is, the desire to come to any conclusions on this doctrine of predestination, election, the sovereignty of God outside of Scripture. But the Bible tells us the same thing. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but what he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever and ever. In other words, limit yourself to what God has revealed in his word. Now, in order to do that, we will do that. We will limit ourselves to the doctrine concerning election, both in the Old and in the New Testament. So let's go to the Old Testament and look at various places. I'm going to have you turn to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah 9. Not as easy to find as Ephesians, right? <laughs> so you have to find it. Nehemiah chapter 9. And the reason why I go there is because what we learn from Old Testament passages on election is that they serve, if you would, as a typological, metaphorical way that we get to the doctrine of election in the New Testament. In other words, in the Old Testament, God chooses for various things, various purposes, and they don't always have to do with salvation. God chooses people he chooses the nation of Israel. He chooses people for a certain role or a certain function. For example, God chooses people to be a prophet. He chooses people to be a king. He chooses people to be an apostle. But he doesn't necessarily choose for salvation. However, it is this election unto salvation that we are concerned with. So when we come to national election, if you would, in, of Israel, 
There is so much there for our instruction, typologically, of God's electing love for us in Christ. So much for us to benefit from as we see God's sovereign election based on his own purposes. And Nehemiah 9 stresses the fact that God's choice is also rooted in the idea that God desires to be glorified. Look at what, it, what, what you know what's going on here in Nehemiah. The people are coming back from Babylon. They're rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and they're dedicating all of this with prayer. They say, arise, Verse 5, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Look at that, lavishing God with praise in prayer. Do we do that? That's just a little caveat, but let's go on. Here, that praise is ascribed to God, to God partly in part because God's sovereign choice of the great patriarch Abraham. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord who chose Abraham, and you brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and you gave him the name Abraham. And so part of why we praise, part of why we worship is because of God's sovereign election. The people of God here in Nehemiah are worshiping that God took Abraham out of his pagan background. He chose him out of his idolatry and he gave him, he gave him the name Abraham. In other words, when they said, and you gave him the name Abraham, that means you renamed him. That means you took ownership of him. You gave him a new identity. He became yours. And the people in Nehemiah's time are very perceptive to, 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 to reason in their mind. Because of that, we are blessed. It's the Abrahamic blessing. Now, regarding Abraham, turn to Genesis 18. In Genesis, we are told that God's own sovereign choice of Abraham is also rooted in his covenant love for Abraham, the fact that God had known him. To know him in this context means that God had chosen to set his love upon Abraham. This is, what, this is why God is willing to disclose to Abraham his purpose and what he's going to do to his friend. Abraham is the friend of God. And if we are Abraham's descendants by faith, we are God's friends too. When Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, now I call you friends. Where does that come from? It comes from Abraham. In the same way that God took Abraham in covenant love to himself, Jesus takes us into his favor by his covenant love as well. Genesis 18 verse 17 says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abram? What I'm about to do, i.e., he is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Since Abraham will surely become a great, mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him. The fact that he is chosen of God means that he is privileged by God. He is brought into God's favor, and God discloses to Abraham the knowledge of his will. Now turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7, because again, national Israel or national election 
of Israel is also extremely important for our understanding of election. Matter of fact, we get so many principles right here out of the idea that God chose Israel as his people, as his nation. And even though this election is national, meaning it's not necessarily salvific, just because God chose the nation Israel does not mean everyone in the nation of Israel is saved. So this is election on a national scale, general scale, not salvific necessarily, but we learn so much here about God's sovereign election of us in Christ. Let's read Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you, very important, were more in number than any of the apostles, or excuse me, any of the peoples. Yeah, more in number than the apostles. There's only 12 apostles. <laughs> more than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So here we learn that their election teaches us so much about our election. He chooses for the purpose of holiness and that corresponds to our choice, to, to our having been chosen for holiness. And that's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. We were chosen so that we would be holy and blameless, just like Israel. He seeks to have a people for his own possession, which means and stresses the idea that when God elects, he elects on the basis of his own personal interest. He has an own, his own purpose, his own interest in the thing that he chooses and that is certainly brought out in many places in the New Testament. Every single one of these has a New Testament counterpoint. And you'll have to go to the manuscript online to see all these verses because I will not read them all to you or we'll be here all day. But he also seeks to separate us. He chooses us to take us out of the world of the profane. Of the world of the profane. I mean, just think about your own life. When you were chosen by God... And when that election became reality and he took you by the hand and he washed you and separated you, think of the backgrounds that you came out of. Out of religious moralism, out of false religion, false spirituality, self-righteousness, out of drugs, immorality, you name it. Such were some of you, Paul says. And... God's choice is not based on anything that we have done. He says God's choice is based on his covenant love. What's the answer to why do you love us? His answer is because I love you. <laughs> this is what Calvin is talking about. Don't try to go any further. <laughs> Let God put a period at the end of his sentences. Period. It's bound up in God's own ambitions, his own interests, his own affections. God delights in choosing what the world does not esteem. Did you notice that from Deuteronomy 6 here or 7? He says, you were the fewest of all the peoples. 
In other words, you had everything against you. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and following, not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise according to this age. God has chosen the foolish things of this world in order to confound the wise. God chooses that which the world does not esteem. If the world had it its way, guess who would be the elect of God? All the rich politicians, all the presidents, all the scientists, all the PhDs, right? All the, the buffest, the toughest, the most beautiful, you know. God doesn't choose that way. God chooses in order to display his glory in the thing that he chooses. He gets glory out of a nation like Israel, despised, dejected, rejected, not esteemed in the eyes of the world. God's choice also, according to this text, is rooted in his boundless love and in his covenant faithfulness. And because he made a covenant to Christ in eternity past to, to unite a people to him, he will make good on that union. These are only just a few ways of how general election in the Old Testament points us to our election in Christ in the New Testament. This is precisely what Peter is talking about. First Peter chapter 1 Peter 2.9, uh, which has a lot of um, correlation back to even this passage out of uh, Deuteronomy. But it says here, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what election is all about. Election, again, is not just so that we can refute the Arminian teachings of our friends and family. It is so that we can marvel, so that we can stand in awe, so that we can glorify God and worship God as you sit here today. Heritage Grace, why are you here on what basis did God say, you will be here, but this person will not? In other words, that's just emblematic of the fact that why is a person in church and a, your other neighbor is not in church? What made you who you are, what you are? What makes you to differ at all? It is only God's sovereign choice. Now, there's another aspect here in the Old Testament a Christological aspect that I think is important for us. Turn to Psalm 89. If you would, there's another connection with election in the Old Testament that is explicitly messianic in nature. In other words, the Messiah is God's prototypical elect one, chosen one. That is what Jesus is called repeatedly, even in the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Acts chapter 4, verse 28, Luke chapter 23, verse 35. Jesus is the chosen one. And uh, by virtue of your union to God's elect one, you are elect. And let's look at these things because based on our... This is sort of Old Testament doctrine of union with Christ. Before there was Ephesians 1, <laughs> 
before there was all these glorious New Testament passages are being in Christ, the psalmist had his way of speaking of this too. And so did the prophets. Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4. Listen to what he says here. He says, I have made my covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So God made a covenant with his servant David, and by virtue of that, all of his descendants are blessed. Now we know, if you keep going there, Psalm 89, jump down to verse 19. It just keeps going on and on and on. How is the Christian to approach this? Well, as we've said this before several times, you don't go back to King David, the son of Jesse. You don't go back to King David, the son of Jesse. You go forward to Jesus, the son of Jesse, if you would. Verse 19, once you spoke in a vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also strengthened him. And the enemy will, will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. You see that? And in my name, his horn will be exalted. That means his strength his might. I shall also set his hand on the sea, his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If this doesn't speak of Christ, it doesn't speak of David, because there's a king higher than David, Christ. So this is the highest king of all. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. In other words, they will have no end. Jesus is chosen by God not for salvation, but in order to give salvation, in order to accomplish salvation, so that he might give us salvation. Now, as we approach the New Testament, as we look to passages like Ephesians 1, passages like Romans 8, you remember that we have in Christ, we were chosen by God in Christ, to have every spiritual blessing given to us. In other words, it's the same vein of thought from the Old Testament. Because of God's choice of Him, and we are in Him, we benefit. Um, Bavink said that election is the first gift of God. That's right. But let's begin in the Gospels. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Because in the Gospels, we go back to the beginning of the good news, right? And in the Gospels, we see the principle of election already taught. Just what amazed me as I was going through this, I literally wanted to stand up here today and read about 100 verses to you. <laughs> There's that many. 
And as I thought, and I looked over this, as you'll see, Jesus had absolutely no problem with the doctrine of election. You know, a lot of people walk around today, even in churches, walking around trying to keep the word election down under their breath. They don't want to say it too loud unless they disturb, you know, make people uh, really struggle with, what, what, what are you talking about? Everyone is elect, isn't it? What do you, you know, God has an elect people? Jesus had no problem talking in that way at all. But look, this goes back to the gospel, and that's what I want to show you. Election is, is, is connected to the gospel, inseparable from the gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you, you begin to see that the gospel begins with a pronouncement of election. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's not a translation. That is not the translators of the NASB trying to smooth out what the Greek really says. The Greek literally says, his people, their sins, which kind of looks forward to next, next week's sermon, Lord willing, on the atonement. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The reason I go all the way to God with us is because God with us, it's not just what you put on a Christmas card, okay? It's, it's covenantal. This is covenant language. You know that God with us is the very high point of the covenant. God in our midst. God is our possession. Now go to Matthew chapter 11. Because in the ministry of Jesus, this is before he comes, but now in the ministry of Jesus, there are some of the strongest pronouncements on sovereign election in all of Scripture. And this begins with a trinit from a trinit Trinitarian perspective here, Father and Son working in perfect harmony in regards to God's sovereign grace. Look at verse 25. This is Matthew 11, verse 25. He says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent, and you have revealed them unto infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Point in fact that Jesus did not will to reveal the Father to everyone. And the first time I came upon that truth, I was struck with terror. And I thought, wow, you mean Jesus hides the truth from certain people? Oh, yes, he certainly does. Everything is serving election. From all eternity, God's redemptive decree and his eternal decree of election it becomes the basis for the way that everything flows out in Scripture. And we'll, I want to get back to that. But what we're looking at here is a sovereign choice by the part of the Son to impart life, the life-saving knowledge of God. 
And he does not do that for everybody. So implicit in the doctrine of election is also the doctrine of reprobation, the doctrine of judicial hardening, that God allows some to stay in their sinful, wicked state and passes over them and does not give them the knowledge of his grace. God does this for his own sovereign purposes. This is why when Jesus says, In Matthew 22, verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus is not making an observation. (laughs) He's making a pronouncement of sovereign election and how it works. He's not saying, oh, this is what seems to happen around here when you preach the gospel. No, he was making a pronouncement of the sovereign grace of God that although many are called, that the call of the gospel goes to many, to all. Few, in fact, are chosen in the end. In the gospels, election informs the way that God dispenses his truth and and the fact that he reveals his truth to his elect in a special way. He calls his people to be fully aware of who he is and effectually calls them to himself. And he's fully aware of those that, even those who appear to come to him, whether or not they are truly his. Look at John 6, 70. Instructive because this is a choosing of the apostles. But even here, Jesus knows. And I think we are meant to see sort of a, uh, of a deeper intention over. John is, is renowned for irony, for the, for the use of almost a double in, in tundre. Uh, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. So he knew that Judas was reprobate, that Judas was, in fact, not chosen for salvation. This is a hard truth, a heavy truth. And it boils down to your whole worldview. How are you going to view the world in a man-centered way? Is man going to be at the heart of all things? Does God, in other words, in order for God to be God, does he have to do uh, that which is pleasing to man? But you see, this this goes back to what we're talking about in Exodus. That part of God being God means he does things on the basis of his own sovereign freedom. And this is what it means to be God. I have had so many people throughout my uh, 20 years of walking with Christ, after coming to the knowledge of election, coming to the knowledge of predestination, the knowledge of God's sovereignty, I have so many people tell me, if that is God, I want nothing to do with him. To which I respond, well, good. Better that you see who God really is than to walk around with an idol in your head and in your heart Better that you know the truth and on the basis of truth you apostatize than than for me to try to mask the truth and hide the truth from you and you live a lie your whole life and perish in the end anyway. You see, this kind of gets to the very core of our view of God. Does he, as Paul uh, himself answers in Romans, does he remain holy and righteous and just In the midst of his sovereign election, he had better. This is where we have to put our hand over our mouth and not speak. And say, God, 
Job 7, 7, I am wind. I'm nothing. How dare I question the potter and his right over the clay? We don't have a right to question that. And this becomes intensely emotional. I was just with a friend not too long ago who is struggling with the doctrine of election. And he picks up one of his, his children. And he picks up his daughter. And he says, you're telling me that right now my daughter can be doomed from the womb. No chance. There's no hope for her. There's no chance. I said, well, I would never, ever say that, first of all. But that does not mean that that is how we interpret the Bible based on our emotional connection to our family. Because if that's how we interpret the Bible, then on what basis do we believe in the doctrine of hell? Because I don't want my family to go to hell either. How could God create a place like hell? The minute you use the emotional hermeneutic, you, you, you find your way out of every teaching in the Bible. How could there only be one way? There are 1.8 billion Muslims on planet Earth. There cannot just be one way. See, emotionalism is not the path to truth. It's not emotionalism. It's exegesis. Yes, yes, it's exposition. Yes, it's following the doctrine of Christ and not straying from that. As John says in 2 John 2.9, some have gone beyond the doctrine of Christ. We can't go beyond the doctrine of Christ. We're limited to the word of God, and we must say the just judge of all the earth will do right. Turn to Luke chapter 18. I just want to show you that in the conversation and in the consciousness of Jesus, the concept of the elect, God's elect, is everywhere. And he uses it in conversation. He's teaching on prayer. He's teaching a principle of prayer in Luke 18, verses 6 through 8. And election is not the focus. But Jesus, dare I say, was such a Calvinist, he didn't mind using the word elect, even in the context of his normal conversations. I know that's an anachronistic way of describing it, but you know what I mean. He held these truths. They came from him. So, Luke 18, he says, hear what the unrighteous judge said because of the persistence of the widow. He says, now, will I, not, will I not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What an amazing statement that is. Will he even find faith on the earth? So let's go to eschatology. How does Jesus talk about election in eschatology? Luke, uh, Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 22. Jesus views eschatology with the well-being of the elect supremely in mind. He says in Matthew 24, 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life, excuse me, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jump down to verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So in Jesus' mind, what's most important in eschatology is what happens to the elect. 
Well, they won't be deceived, although times will be so incredibly satanic, demonically deceptive that if it were possible, even the elect themselves would be deceived by false Christs. And if it wasn't for the sake of the elect, no one would be saved. But because God has chosen, because God has an elect people, he will be faithful to them even in the midst of great tribulation. Now, what about the apostles? That's the gospel, some of it. What about the apostles? Because there's so much here. In the apostles, the doctrine of election comes even into greater focus. Turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to what it says here. He saved us and he called us with a holy calling. He says, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted to us, or he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. You know, if you ever hear anybody tell you, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you are chosen for salvation, that you are elect for salvation. You may be elect to experience certain privileges and things like that, but this flies right in the face of that. In eternity, God put us in Christ Jesus in order to save us, in order to save us. And jump, uh, now I want to take you to Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 11, because God calls us in an unconditional way. He calls us in a way that our works, as, as, as Paul said in Timothy, as our works have nothing to do with it. They don't inform God when he puts us in union with Son in eternity. They didn't inform his decision, his choice, and the same is true for every single person that has ever lived who is elect. Romans 9, 11 is sort of the paradigm. The, the, it's, 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 like the, um, it's, it, it's like the grid through which the whole chapter here runs, Romans 9, 11. He says, though the twins, that is Jacob and Esau, were yet unborn and had done nothing good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, boy, I wish the NASB would say election, because that's what it should say, but anyway, we'll let that slide. God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. You see, God's election, this is what the reformers were saying when they said, no, the Catholic Church has it wrong. Arminius has it wrong. The remonstrance movement, they have it wrong. God is not choosing people on the basis of foreseeing their faith, foreseeing something that they've done. This verse is insurmountable. God's choice was made not because of any works that they had done. Nothing good or evil commended them or demended them, if you would, from God's choice. He chose on the basis of his free and unconditional election. So election is not conditional at all. Now turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 because we are chosen for the purpose of holiness. I bring this up just to say this is one of the purposes, right? Ephesians 1, 4. We're chosen in order to be blameless, to be holy. It's the same thing that we are told in Colossians chapter 3. So, verse 12, Colossians 3, 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, in other words, 
Be holy, or excuse me, holy and beloved. Put on a heart of compassion. So in other words, we should view our election as the reason why we move out in the fruit of the Spirit, why we show compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. In other words, because you have been chosen of God, be humble. What? But I thought election should speak of your divine privilege, of your privilege. But it must therefore be unconditional election. You are chosen of God and you are able to be humble because it had nothing to do with you. Had nothing to do with you whatsoever. But what passages like this say is that there is an order, there is a logical order to salvation. And to see that maybe in its most brightest light, turn with me to Romans 8. You knew I was going to go there eventually. Romans 8, 29 through 30. This is classic passage of Scripture. This is what has been called the golden chain of redemption by the Puritan William Perkins. I think he's the first one who ever coined that phrase. You hear a lot of people use it today. That's what it goes back to. But Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew. Now we got to stop and define what does that word, uh, what does that word foreknew mean? Does that mean that God knew ahead of time certain people? No, it can't mean that because that would be a meaningless statement. God foreknows everything in that way. God already knows that there would be a people who would accept him and who would reject him. God already knows that there would be a devil. God knew that there would be elect and non-elect angels, according to Paul in Timothy. No, God knows everything ahead of time. So the word foreknow cannot mean that. It means something much more strong, much more salvific. It means that God, just like we talked about in the Old Testament, and that's where it comes from. It comes from the idea of God saying, I knew Abraham. I know him. It means he has a special bond, a sacred bond with Abraham. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. I knew you. I had entered into a covenant relationship with you. Some would say it's, it means God set his love on you. That's what being foreknown by God means. And on the basis of his foreknowledge, guess what? He predestines us. That's what it says. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you are foreknown, then you are predestined. Now, okay, if you get in a debate with an Armenian, <laughs> this is important, okay? Because if he is saying foreknowledge just means that God knew ahead of time that somebody would choose, that, that, that God knew ahead of time something that they would do, that God knows people ahead of time, well, that's just speaking of God having knowledge of future events. But again, God, can you tell me someone who is not foreknown by God in that way, that he knew that they would be? And if he knows everyone in that way, then everyone should be predestined, but they are not. So he predestines those whom he foreknew, he foreknew and it says, to become conformed to the image of his Son, which is the same thing as saying to be saved. To be saved. 
To be saved is to be conformed to the image of his son. Because you're saved, you will be conformed to the image of his son. And you cannot be conformed into the image of God's son unless you're saved. So predestination absolutely has to do with salvation. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. Now that is getting ahead to what we would call irresistible grace, effectual calling, that, that, that God calls people effectually, and some people he doesn't call effectually. The call goes out to everybody, but there are some, the elect, who God then calls effectually to himself, actually brings them to himself in salvation. That is what is meant here by called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And the ones who he justified, he also glorified. The point is, is that there is no break in the process. There is nothing that can break up the very fountain of salvation, which is foreknowledge predestination, election, that is the fount, that is the stream, that is the fountainhead that everything comes from and it never gets interrupted until it gets to glorification. God accomplishes his purposes. God does not, God is not a sloppy savior. He doesn't foul up salvation. He doesn't allow you to mess it up. Isn't that comforting? Now let's talk about the comfort of election. The fact that you are elect means there's nothing that you can do to become elect. And it also means there's nothing that you can do to be non-elect. It means you're secure. You're safe. You're, you're hidden in God, in Christ. You're safe in Him. He is your refuge, your shepherd for all of your life. He will keep you in His hand. You will not get out. You can't jump out. You don't have free will to jump out of God's hand. <laughs> Thank goodness. Because I believe in the doctrine of total depravity to such an extent that if we had the freedom to jump out of God's hand, every single person in this room would for a bowl of soup. That is the doctrine of total depravity. But everything, my friends, serves the doctrine of election. I want to leave you with, I want to leave you with what God is doing to sure, sort of hopefully make you see the wonder of it, the beauty of it, the grandeur of what God is doing because it is not just one little point in a controversy in an argument that you get with your family. That's not what it is. It's much greater than that. It's grander than that. God is building a new people, a new humanity. He is creating a superstructure, a spiritual temple of all of his elect people from all of the foundations of the world, and one day he will display that glory to everybody. That's what Ephesians 3 is telling us. But I want to leave you with Herman Bavinck's quote on election because I thought it was superb. This is what Herman Bavinck had to say. Now listen carefully. He says, election is the divine idea, the eternal blueprint of the temple that he is building in the course of the ages of which he is the supreme architect and builder. All things are subordinate and they are subservient to the construction of that temple. Just as all the decrees of God culminate in that of the glorification of God, so the entire history of the world and mankind works together for the coming of the kingdom of God. 
even those who are not citizens of that kingdom, as says Calvin, are born with a view to the salvation of the elect. Listen to this. Creation and fall, preservation, governance, sin, grace, Adam, Christ, all contribute each in his own or her own way to the construction of this divine edifice and this building itself is built to the honor and to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help us, therefore, to derive so much good from this doctrine. I know it's difficult. I know that I'll have questions. I know that people will ponder this in their heart. I know that people will struggle But in all of our struggle, let us not lose sight of the wonder. And above everything, Lord, if we are elect, help us not to make our focus the non-elect, but instead to make our focus the glory of God, as it should be. Lord, thank you for the doctrine of election. So much good comes to us from election. Election humbles us. And so, Father, we thank you that because we are chosen according to nothing good that we have done, we have nothing to boast about. We thank you that election teaches us that we are secure in your hands, and so it plays right into our assurance. And so, God, would you assure our hearts before you? Father, help us to Be humble even as we approach the whole subject of election, even as we approach what it means to be elect, what it means to be chosen of God. Remind us that you chose us on the basis of your love, and your love is not capricious. It doesn't change. It doesn't fluctuate. You have set your covenant love upon us, and you will not remove it from us For Christ's sake, believers benefit from election probably more than anything else because it is through that that we experience our union with Christ. Oh, God, thank you that we are united to your Son, Jesus, because from him comes everything that we ever need. From Christ We derive every spiritual blessing, abundant life. We'll never thirst again. We have nothing to thirst after if you have truly quenched our thirst in Christ. So, Lord, we thank you for putting us and choosing us and putting us in your Son. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.